So in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the very first words that God declares to his people are these profound and beautiful words in which he says to us, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Right away, God reveals his purpose and his goal for the earth. He wishes to fill it with his very own image. So the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, all 40 chapters of it ultimately ask one big question. Can the purposes of God to fill the earth for his own glory be stopped? Can God be stopped? That's the question Exodus is concerned with. Can Egypt stop the purposes of God? Can Pharaoh stop the purposes of God? Can difficult circumstances stop the purposes of God? Can you and I stop the purposes of God? The purpose of God is to fill the earth with his own image. So obviously we got to do some theology right up front about the earth. How, how is Christians, I mean, we live in the earth. We spent roughly our whole lives on the earth, so we should think critically about it. How should a Christian think about the earth? Um, one theologian proposes that the Christian should envision the earth like a chalice. So for just a moment now, picture in your imagination exactly that, a chalice. Can you see it? In your imagination, maybe you want to uh, have, some, have some creative free reign over it. In your imagination, maybe you want the chalice to be painted gold. Maybe you want the chalice to be painted silver. Perhaps you want some inscriptions or some pretty engravings on it. Maybe some jewels around the top of the chalice. But nevertheless, the point is this. Creation is like a chalice. A chalice sitting all alone on its shelf is beautiful by its very own merit. You can just look at it on a shelf at a chalice and say, that's, that's beautiful, right? Creation is like this. You don't need to be a Christian to look at creation in its own merit and say, that's beautiful. You don't need to be a Christian to watch a, a sunset just explode over the horizon and melt into the ground. You don't need to be a Christian to, uh, to, to pull a trout out of the stream and see it glitter underneath the sun and go, oh, creation is beautiful. In this same way, by itself, a chalice is beautiful, but its own merit in its inscriptions and in its appearance is not ultimately what makes a chalice beautiful. What ultimately makes a chalice beautiful is precisely what it's designed to hold and bestow. A chalice is designed to hold and bestow wine. And if you're of age, wine is supposed to taste good. And the Bible says it's supposed to make your heart happy. And that is what makes a chalice beautiful, what it's designed to hold. This is exactly how we should think about the earth. Beautiful by its own merits, but ultimately what makes the earth beautiful? The earth gains its ultimate beauty from what it's designed to hold and bestow. It is supposed to hold the glory of God and bestow upon us 
the pleasures of God. From creation, we are meant to drink in the presence of God and enjoy him and be satisfied in him and be happy in him, which is why after creating the earth in Genesis, God creates human beings in the image of God and commands them to fill, whoosh, like a chalice, to fill the earth because an earth that is full with the image of God is exploding with the glory of God. And uh, this also, by the way, this also explains why when you wander around in your Bible a little bit in the Old Testament and New Testament, you continuously bump into language of multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth, multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth. Why is it everywhere in the scriptures? In fact, this morning when we start the book of Exodus, right there in Exodus 1, you guessed it. We'll see the language of multiplying and filling the earth. You can probably already sense the main theme of my sermon this morning, right? You guys probably have me figured out. You got me. Multiply, fill the earth. Before we look at Exodus 1, um, let's lay down some quick ground rules for our Exodus sermon series. I've got two this morning. First, we will allow the Bible to interpret the book of Exodus. This has been a central principle to biblical Christianity. First and foremost, as important as it is, your personal experience, which is important, doesn't translate the Bible. Traditions, biases, preconceived notions, these things don't translate the Bible. The principle is the Bible translates the Bible. So at a, at a really practical, ground-level approach, what that means is that when we bump into something confusing in the book of Exodus, which we will often because it was written in a different culture than ours, when we bump into confusing things in the book of Exodus, we will look elsewhere in the Bible to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament interprets these events. And I think it'll shock you because I think what you're going to find is that the Exodus is actually like on every page of the Bible. Exodus language, Exodus stories, Exodus echoes, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. I think you'll read throughout the rest of the, the Bible and think, how did I miss this? How did I miss all of these cool Exodus echoes all throughout the Bible? I think it's going to be a, a great 40-week project for us. My second ground rule for the book of Exodus is this. We will also read the Exodus in a gospel-centered way. The Exodus is a historically true account that happened in a real place, in a real time, with real people, and yet the rest of the scriptures end up looking to the Exodus, yes, as history, but also as more than history, as sort of a blueprint that would help them make sense of their own lives. So one way you'll see this play itself out is you'll notice that like all of the technical language that we see in the Bible that describes who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done will maybe come to life for us in new ways like never before. You might find yourself saying, oh, that, that's why the New Testament writers chose the word saved to describe what Christ has accomplished for us. It comes from Exodus. Or you might find yourself saying, oh, that's, that's why Paul uses the word redeemed in order to describe how it is we, we come to Jesus. They're not pulling these words out of thin air. They're actually pulling them out of Exodus. And we need to push this also into our own lives. One Exodus scholar phrases it powerfully. I love this quote. He says, people 
all around us go through their daily lives and they do not recognize their pharaohs and they do not recognize their plagues or their manna or their chariots and the church has been given the responsibility to stand in the middle of this exodus story and witness to it to witness how they're living the exodus so yes we will interpret the exodus that's not the point the point is for the exodus to interpret you. You get that? It's important to, to get the exodus. But it's more important to get into the exodus. Okay? And we want to make this as clear as possible by calling this sermon series, This is Your Exodus. We hope that after these 40 weeks in the book of Exodus, you never read the Bible the same way again. Are you guys ready for the exodus, church? You guys ready? All right, let's stand for the first seven verses. Moses is writing the history of the Israelites after the book of Genesis. And he says, These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were, you guessed it, fruitful, and increased greatly. They, you guessed it, multiply and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was you guessed it, filled with them. Church, you can have a seat. Strange note to start on, but I'm going to go for it. Um, if you're keeping count with the new last couple ones, there are now roughly eight Rocky Balboa boxing movies. <laughs> And I love them, but I realize not everybody does. And so a lot of you, every time they make a new Rocky, Rocky boxing movie, you think, you probably think, how, how many of these movies can they really make? I mean, it's just boxing, right? You already know the plot. You already know that it's about an underdog fighter. He's going to have a main villainous enemy. There's going to be a, an epic training montage in the middle of the movie. And at the end, it's going to end with this epic fight. And it's, but, but it's just boxing, right? And so you, you watch Rocky 1. And after Rocky 1, what they do is they take the same blueprint. But this time... They, uh, they add a newborn into the mix, and Rocky gets married, and there's a rematch. And so you wonder, oh, man, in Rocky two, is Rocky finally going to win? And the answer, spoiler, is yes, he does. Um, but then you think, okay, surely it's just boxing. That's got to be where the movie series ends, right? And no, no, no. Then comes Rocky three. And what do they do in Rocky Three? They do pretty much the exact same thing. The same plot. There's a villain. Uh, there's the underdog. But this time it's a little different because Rocky loses his motivation. He loses the eye of the tiger. And you wonder, is he going to get it back? Is he going to get the eye of the tiger back? And he does. And he, and he wins. And surely that's all the farther the series can go, right? Wrong. Then comes the epic Rocky Four, which is my favorite of the series. I don't have to explain why. But it's the same plot. 
pretty much the same characters, slightly different. It's the underdog fighter, but this time Rocky fights the Russian who killed his best friend, and still it's electric, same characters, same plot line, slightly different circumstances, and the pattern just repeats itself over and over and over again. And if you're me, just as compelling every time. Now, <laughs> if you're a really big Rocky fan, there are like all these really cool echoes of Rocky One in the rest of the films. Where you're watching Rocky Three and you're like, oh, that's a quote from Rocky One. Or you're watching Rocky Five and you're like, oh, that's a reference to that training montage in, in Rocky One. All these cool little secret Easter eggs that if you didn't love the first Rocky film, you wouldn't get. Now, I'm not just telling you this because I love the Rocky <laughs> series. I'm telling you this because this is almost precisely how the church has always conceptualized the place of Exodus with the other 65 books of the Bible as a blueprint or sort of a meta pattern where the narrative and the characters continue to get repeated and repeated and slightly tweaked with new circumstances. But wherever you look in the Bible, it's the same plot line. It's the Exodus plot line. People are dumb. They get into trouble. God saves them. Wherever you look in the Bible, it's pretty much the same main characters in the same fight. God versus the devil. Christ versus sin. The people of God versus the serpent. It's a, it's a meta-narrative. So it's actually no surprise that, um, that Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, begins the way that it begins. With the word and. Take a look at verse 1 in your scriptures really quickly. We'll have it on the screen for you. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Now, some of your translations have the word and at the beginning of them, and some of them don't. But verse 1, regardless of what your translation is, in the original translation, the Hebrew, Moses began with the word of all words, and which is quite a way to start a book, right? And so Moses actually chose that word and for a reason, because he wanted to show his readers, he was thinking of you guys, he knew that God was gonna grow a huge family and in the future, and he's trying to show you, he's trying to show me that the Exodus story is not just beginning, it's, it's already um, in motion. He's picking up exactly where the book of Genesis leaves off. I mean, it's kind of like, Without the word and in your scriptures, it, it just kind of feels like the Israelites sort of haphazardly wound up in Egypt and were like, oh no, we're in Egypt, now we're stuck. Like they just kind of wandered into Egypt accidentally. That's not the case. So how did we get into Egypt in Exodus 1, chapter 1? Well, there's actually a phrase in the book of Genesis I mentioned earlier that has the power to unlock our text this morning. Right after creating Adam and Eve, the first recorded words of God to mankind are these words in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. To reference the metaphor I used earlier, God says, fill the chalice. Now, if you guys know the biblical story, what happens is a, a serpent shows up and Adam and Eve royally screw up that commandment and it seems like God's dream to fill the earth with God's glory is going to fail. 
And to make matters worse, if you keep reading through the book of Genesis, it's not just Adam and Eve who screwed up, it's like everybody. You're reading through Genesis and you're like, oh my gosh, we just can't get this right. Maybe the most epic fail to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in all of the scriptures actually comes in Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. Do you guys know this story? The story of people coming together and trying to build a, a tower that reaches into the heavens. Now, postmodern people like us, we, we tend to read the, the Tower of Babel by sort of understanding the people in the story as like the ambitious entrepreneurial millennials who, bro, they have like, they have dreams and they have hopes and, and they have aspirations and they're going to take their little lives and build skyscrapers out of them. And then God is kind of like this big, mean project manager who comes down with a hard helmet and smacks down all their hopes and dreams. And it's like, God, how could you do that? That's not at the heart of a pre-modern biblical worldview of the Tower of Babel. Remember, humans were supposed to do what? multiply and fill the earth in order to display the beauty of God in every square inch of the earth. Is that what people are doing in the Tower of Babel? <laughs> no. I mean, literally, Genesis 11, if you don't believe me, you can read this later today, and I suggest that you do. The people in Genesis 11 literally say this while they're building the tower. They say, let's build a tower to make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You hear that? Let's build a tower. Otherwise, we'll actually have to be faithful to God. So rather than obeying God and filling the earth with human beings, they, they, they build the first megachurch. I'm kidding. I've got no beef on that. Let me start Let's start over. Rather than obeying God and filling the earth with human beings, they try to fill the heavens with human beings. Translation, they want to become gods. Rather than building outward for the glory of God, they build upward for their own glory. And again, it's so sad because it seems like God's dream to fill the earth with his glory has just failed kind of wondering, when is God going to give up on people? And God, in Genesis 11, he ain't having the Tower of Babel. So if you know the story, what happens is God decides to do what God often does, which is after his people fail to obey him, he ends up taking care of it himself, right? It's kind of like that old expression. If God wants something done right, he's going to do it himself. And so God smacks the tower down, gives the people new languages, scatters them throughout the earth, and this story, the scattering of humanity at the Tower of Babel, actually ends up being key to the book of Exodus because at the scattering of the Tower of Babel is not merely the job relocation of human beings in the miraculous foreign language acquisition of degrees. That's not merely what's happening when he scatters people throughout the whole earth. At the Tower of Babel, God is disinheriting the nations. God no longer claims them as his people and they no longer claim him as their God. Okay. Enter Egypt. This is a pre-modern understanding of Egypt. To the Israelites in the book of Exodus, 
Egypt was not just a, a foreign place with a scary leader. And at surface level, no matter how well you know the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus is not just about a big nation bossing around a small nation or a powerful corrupt leader bowling around Jewish people. And at surface level, of course, that's true in those things that happen. But if you know the Bible, you, you know that the Bible is never just concerned with surface level. In fact, later on in the book of Exodus, Moses will peel back the surface and show us what's actually happening underneath all of the events that are happening in Exodus. For instance, Exodus 12 describes the plagues against Egypt. We'll get there eventually. He describes the plagues against Egypt, not ultimately as plagues against Egypt. We'll have this on the screen for you, but take a peek at Exodus 12. God says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. They're described ultimately as plagues against Egyptian gods. Or later on in Exodus 18, again, we'll have this on the screen for you, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, responds to the Exodus event by saying, Blessed be the Lord who did all that for you. He delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and he has delivered the people under the hand of the Egypts. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. So how did the Israelites view Egypt? They viewed Egypt as a nation that has its roots not in God, but its roots in the Tower of Babel. Egypt to them was one of those nations that God gave over to the rule and reign of the enemy. The Tower of Babel, what it does is it, it sets the stage. It casts the characters for the fight. It wipes the mats clean for the combat that's about to take place in Exodus. The context is set. The fight is booked. Ding, ding. The Exodus is God versus the devil. Jesus versus sin, the people of God versus the serpent. Because just when you think God is going to give up on people at the Tower of Babel, out of the rubble of that smackdown tower, out of the heaping pile of human arrogance at the Tower of Babel, God reaches into the mess and he begins to make a new people for himself. He pulls out of the rubble a man named Abraham and listen to the promise that God makes Abraham in Genesis 12. We'll have it on the screen for you. He says, and I will make of you a great nation. Now, now notice something here. Notice this. Now, it's not only that God is commanding a job to be done, God is promising to get the job done. Notice this in the text. He says, I will make you of a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will go on to be a blessing in all the earth. God will do it. God will do it. God will do it. And just when Abraham begins that God will do it, God does it. Abraham ends up having kids, and those kids have kids who have kids. And the rest of Genesis is ultimately devoted to that. Abraham, his family growing, his kids having kids. And somehow, someway, we wind up at our original question. How did they, as Abraham's family continued to grow, just wind up in 
Egypt. It's an enemy rival nation. It's ruled by the enemy. How did they want? Maybe Abraham or maybe one of his descendants like Isaac or Jacob. Maybe they plugged in the wrong address into their GPS and they somehow wound up and they're, oh no, we're in Egypt. Or maybe, uh, maybe uh, Joseph was texting while driving, right? Or Jacob was texting while driving and when he finally popped his head up, he was like, oh no, we're in the, the city limits of Egypt. How did we get here? Obviously not. <laughs> Here's what happens. At the end of the book of Genesis, things get really tough for God's people, for Abraham's family. And God speaks to a descendant of Abraham, Jacob. Genesis 46 on the screen will show this to you. But this is what happens. When things got tough for God's people, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. In fact, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Listen carefully to this. God told them to go to Egypt. <laughs> God told them to go to Egypt. How did they wind up in slavery, in chains? How did they wind up in Egypt? How did they wind up in this epic fight against Pharaoh? God did it. God started it. He sovereignly pushed his people into Egypt and on enemy territory in the middle of Egypt, God begins to fill and be fruitful and multiply and fill Egypt with his people. Look at verses two through six in Exodus chapter one. He says, well, there was, when they originally got there, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, this little genealogy, two through five there, um, that you probably usually skip when you read through the scriptures. You do, right? You probably skipped. I've, I've never been talking to somebody who's like, man, that genealogy just really spoke to my heart. You kind of gloss over it, but it's, it's in there for a huge reason, and the reason is this. This genealogy reminds the Israelites that they are not in, in any way, shape, or form like the Egyptians. It, it, to reference a song, they do not walk like the Egyptians. You guys like that, huh? <laughs> Egypt is huge, man. Egypt is mammoth. Egypt is Goliath. Egypt is powerful. The Israelites aren't. And that number in Exodus 1, 70 persons, that's there for a reason too. Now, I'm, I'm not convinced that it means that there were exactly 70 persons and not 71 or 72. That could have been the case, but... The, what the, the number 70 means to communicate is small. It means to communicate, oh no, they're in trouble. Egypt at any moment in time could crush them with Egypt's pinky. The number 70 means small. But remember, God promised. 
God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And 70 people is not a great nation. But our big question on the table is, can God's purposes be stopped? Can difficult circumstances, can Pharaoh stop God's purposes? Can Egypt stop God's purposes? Can anybody stop God's people from multiplying and filling the earth? Will God be unfaithful to his promise to make Israel into a great nation? Well, the next verse, verse 7, is so unbelievable. And it's it's. It's so statistically improbable that it's actually caused a ton of critics to stumble over it and reject the historical, the historicity of the book of Exodus. In fact, there's one critic who said this. He said, the very notion that a single family could in the course of a few centuries develop into a nation consisting of hundreds of thousands of individuals is so fantastic that it can't be believed as history. That's one side of the argument. And yet, there have been people who have been converted to Christianity because of the pure historicity and historical reliability of the book of Exodus. I mean, listen to this critic over here. This scholar, after studying the book of Exodus, made this conclusion. He said, I can't get around it. The Exodus cannot be fictional. No nation would be likely to invent for itself an inglorious tradition of this nature and then pass it along century after century. So in other words, the Israelites, in their own history, present themselves as idiotic, forgetful, disobedient, and imperfect people. And this is not the way that nations record their own history, or remember their own history, or teach their own history. Think back to your own American history class. Every effort by every nation is put into making sure that everybody in that nation sees that nation as a hero. So they twist and manipulate history. And yet, if the Israelites are making up history, why do they look so bad in it? They're just going to get beat up. Why would they pass that along? In other words, if you could make up your own history, like if you had the freedom to invent how the world would remember you and your family, it would look nothing like the book of Exodus. And you have to deal with these realities because the verse that we have to reckon with and deal with us is waiting in our text. It's verse 7. Let's look at what God does in the middle of Egypt. Verse 7 says, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land of Egypt was filled with them. Fruitful, multiplying, filling the land, filling the chalice. This is Genesis 1 in Exodus 1. The promise that God made in Genesis is happening in Exodus. It's coming true. God is doing it. He's being faithful to his promise. God is faithful, faithful, faithful. And right now, push, push, push that truth into your life. You need to know and anchor your heart in the reality that God is faithful, faithful, faithful because your life will be full of broken promises, you guys. It's, it's, it's so sad. 
Some of you remember the first time that you ever experienced a broken promise in your life as a child. You had no idea that promises could be so mean. As a child, you had no idea that people could take language and manipulate it and use it not to communicate reality, not to communicate truth, but to manipulate you and let you down. And as a child, when you experience that first broken promise, your jaw dropped to the ground. You didn't have words. All you could say was, you could, all you could say was, but you promised. But you said, Mom. But you said that. And the rest of our lives kind of feels like that. People make wedding vows and then they break them. Job promotions get promised and taken away. Parents buy kids fish tanks and promise to fill them with fish. And sometimes the tank remains empty, and it's so sad, man. Friends walk into your lives, and they say, we're in it for the long haul, and then they bail. People break promises. People are unfaithful. That's not the worst part. Even you become unfaithful to your own promises to yourself. That's maybe the worst part. You break your own promises. You lie to yourself. And so somewhere along the way, you just kind of want to curl up into a ball and trust nobody. I can't trust my spouse. I can't trust my neighbor. I can't trust my friends. I can't even trust myself. And part of the problem is that every promise in your life has come to you in the form of propositions. I promise to never. I swear I would never. I, I vow to stay by your side. Just propositions, right? Just words. Just words, 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 words. And guys, what makes God different, and I need you to hear this, <laughs> what makes God different is that his promises don't just come to us in the form of propositions. His promise ultimately comes to us in the form of a person. So make God, that's what makes God so different. His promise takes on flesh and blood. His promise comes with a nervous system. His promise comes with guts. His promise came with bones that could be hung upon a cross. His promises do not remain just words. His promise comes to us in the form of the word, Jesus Christ. He's your promise. He is evidence. He is proof that God will be faithful. Has God promised you that in Christ he will take away all your sins? He will do it. Has God promised you that in Christ he will wipe you clean and so you are peerless before the throne of God? He will do it. In Christ has God promised you a place in heaven? He'll give it to you. In Christ has God promised you the resurrection? He'll do it for you. In Christ has God promised to be with you? He won't withhold himself from you. In Christ has God promised you fullness of joy? He'll make it overflow. God is faithful, faithful, faithful. If God broke promises, you wouldn't exist. You exist because God promised to fill the chalice of the earth with the wine of his own glory. And so God stays faithful when everybody else leaves. God took 70 people in Exodus 1. This little drop in this gigantic chalice 
and pours himself out on them by multiplying them and multiplying them and filling Egypt with them. And after more and more multiplying, eventually out of Israel comes Jesus Christ. And Christ would be committed to multiplying his likeness. He committed himself to making disciples. And those disciples would multiply disciples. And those disciples would go out and fill the earth by planting churches that would plant churches in every conceivable nation, nook and cranny, state, place, and country. And these churches would make more disciples and more disciples who would somewhere along the road, somehow, some way, one day, preach the gospel to you. And God saved you through it. And now God is going to multiply your faith. You are going to make disciples who make disciples who plant churches that plant churches until Jesus Christ returns to fill the chalice. Paul says on that day, God will be all in all. Habakkuk says the earth on that day will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. All of the earth right now is waiting for this. You can just tell sometimes when you look out at the physical earth, right? You just look at those treetops and they're just reaching out to God saying, come back and make a new creation. Fill us with your glory. Right, you could, sometimes underneath your feet, you can just feel the earth doing what Paul says it's doing, rumbling and groaning, praying to be filled with the glory and the presence of God. And when that happens, eventually, everywhere you look will be the beauty of the Lord. And in every nook and cranny of new creation, you will drink in the wine of God's presence and your heart will be happy. New creation will be filled to the brim with God and he will be overflowing the chalice. 70 Israelites in Egypt, and God's like, I can work with that. Couple loaves of bread and some fish. Jesus is like, yeah, I can work with that. 70 people, I could fill Egypt with that. I mean, some of us out here, we're, we're worried about the decline of Christianity in the world. 70 people, that's a different sermon. But be confident. I'll be faithful to his promise. And as we look forward to praying and singing together this morning, let, let's end here. Um, I've been hiding something from you in the text. Maybe some of you noticed that I skipped over a verse. I've been hiding verse 6 in the text because there's an important detail that's lodged in verse 6, okay? When God's people rolled into Egypt, even though it's an enemy and rival nation, Jacob was there. And for some reason, Jacob was homies with the Pharaoh, and they were cool, and they understood one another. And so as long as Jacob was in Egypt, the Israelites were safe in Egypt. Then Jacob dies. But then Joseph comes along, and Joseph takes over his role, and he kind of has a pre-existing relationship with the Pharaohs. And so as long as Joseph is alive and well, God's people are safe in Egypt. But read verse 6. We'll have it on the screen for you. Verse 6 says, then in Egypt, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So as an ancient reader right now, you're thinking, uh-oh, uh-oh, no Jacob, <laughs> no Joseph. Are they going to be, do you feel the tension building right now? What's going to happen to him without Jacob and Joseph? And also, let's not even mention the fact that the first time God commanded his people to fill the earth, the enemy showed up to stop it. Somebody who didn't want the earth to be filled with God. And so when God's people are multiplying and fill the earth, you can't help but wonder, 
Is he going to show up again? Is this Rocky too? Is the enemy coming back? Is he going to try and stop God's purposes to fill the earth with the glory of God? Read verses 8 through 9. I know this isn't our text this morning. I'm going to give you a sneak peek of next Sunday's text. Verse 8 through 9 says, Then, after Jacob and Joseph died, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, the new Pharaoh said to his people, pause. This new king, this new Pharaoh, will he be for God's people or will he be against God's people? Will he be for the growth of, of Israel into a nation or will he, will he use the size advantage of Egypt to smash God's people. Will God's people remain safe in Egypt? <laughs> We're going to look at that next Sunday. You guys ready for the next 39 weeks in Exodus? It's going to be crazy. It's going to be a wild ride. I think God will just be faithful to us. So let's pray together.